Well, if you have a Bible, please open up to Leviticus chapter 8. As Mike mentioned in the announcements, we're going to be trying to cover a large chunk of Scripture today. We won't have time to read everything uh, from the passage, but I will try to point out where we are. Um, and so I think you'll be helped by having a Bible open. Uh, before we dig into that, uh, I wonder if you've ever thought about what you need to wear if you're going on a spacewalk. NASA astronauts wear a certain kind of spacesuit while inside the spacecraft, so as they uh, launch and ascend into space and then re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, they have one kind of spacesuit, but when they're going on a spacewalk, when they leave the confines of the craft and go on what's known formally as an extravehicular activity, they wear a special suit called an EVA suit, EVA, extravehicular activity suit. Uh, this suit is really a miniature spaceship that's shaped like a human being. It protects the astronauts from radiation and dust and debris. It, it keeps their body at the right temperature despite exposure to extremes from 250 degrees Fahrenheit in the sun uh, to negative 250 in the dark. Uh, the EVA suit provides the proper body pressure and supplies the spacewalker with water to drink and oxygen to breathe. It has everything you need to sustain life in an inhospitable uh, environment. There is a cooling garment that pumps chilled water through over 300 feet of tiny tubes that are wrapped around the astronaut's body. There's a hard upper torso, kind of a, a sleeveless shirt that connects the inside of the suit with the rest of the system. There are gloves that protect and warm the hands. I don't know if you know this, but the hands are the things that get completely cold first, and so the hands have to be kept warm, but the gloves need to be thin enough that they can manipulate tools with dexterity. You add onto that a specialized helmet, a communication system, a life support system, and you have what comes to a massively complicated set of clothing. NASA recently uh, unveiled what they call the Axe EMU suit. It's scheduled for use in 2025. And it cost a quarter billion dollars just to develop. Not to actually make one, just to develop it. That sounds like a lot of money. Sounds like a lot of effort. But if you want to walk in space, you have no other choice. I mean, you can go out into space dressed any way you'd like. But you'll be dead the moment you do. The only way to be safe walking around in space, the only way to enjoy the benefits of space exploration is to wear the proper suit. And maybe that idea helps us to think through the, the tension that the Old Testament book of Leviticus seeks to resolve. If you remember what we talked about last week, the book of Exodus concludes with a problem. Right? When we were studying through the book of Exodus some months ago, we saw that God brought his people out of slavery in the land of Egypt. He brought them out into the desert to Mount Sinai. He gave them the Ten Commandments and some specific instructions for building the tabernacle, this elaborate tent where his presence would dwell with them. And so at the end of Exodus, we saw that the tabernacle was something like a, a recreation of the Garden of Eden in the desert, 
right? All of the imagery of the, the tabernacle pointed us in that direction. It was a place of holiness, a place of beauty, where God's people could enjoy his presence. And so the book of Exodus ends with the construction of the tabernacle, right? You have this replanted Garden of Eden in the wilderness of Sinai, and we read there in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But there's a hitch. In the very next verse, we read this. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so that's how the book of Exodus ends. God's people are standing outside of the tabernacle. His glory, his presence is there. It's, it's everything that they've been waiting for. It's everything they were created for. But Moses, their representative, he can't go inside. He's stuck outside specifically because the glory of the Lord is in there. It's not safe for a human being to go in there. And our passage um, this week as we uh, consider Leviticus chapter 8 and 9 and 10, by the time we get to the end of chapter 9, not to sort of spoil things and get ahead of ourselves, we're going to see the resolution to that problem. That problem of Moses being stuck outside the temple is going to get resolved for us in our passage for this morning. But before we get there, we're going to see Aaron and his sons go through a really elaborate ceremony. In order for them to come into the tent of meeting, for the, in order for them to meet with God in the sort of smaller tent inside the larger courtyard, in order to offer all the sacrifices that we thought about last week in Leviticus, the priests, Aaron and his sons, need to be ordained. They need to be commissioned for the work. And some of the details that we're going to consider this morning might seem strange to us. But what's clear is that this ceremony is the only way that God's people can go from being stuck outside the tabernacle, kept at arm's length from his presence and his glory, kept outside this new Garden of Eden that's been planted in the desert. It's the only way for them to come inside. And now listen, even if we wouldn't say it out loud, as we read through a passage like this, we might be tempted to act as if this whole problem is a, a sort of difficulty of God's making. Right? We might look at all the ceremonies, the rituals, the sacrifices, right, which God says are absolutely necessary for a human being to come into his presence, and we might think that they, they point to some kind of character defect in God. Like, God, what, like what gives? Why are you so picky, so, so demanding, so hard to please that, that Aaron and his sons have to go through all of this just to come into your presence? Why can't you just relax a little bit and let people come to you the way they want to? Maybe you know people who think that way. People who think that, well, if God is love, that means I can relate to him any way I want to. Maybe you feel that way yourself that you really don't need the Bible because you've got your own path to God. You can find your own way inside that tent, so to speak. But friends, what we're going to see very clearly this morning from our passage in Scripture is that the only way into the presence of God, right, the only way back into the very thing for which we were created, the place where we experience the blessings of paradise, the only way into the presence of God is through the way that he has opened up and the way that he has revealed. It's like this. If you want to walk on the moon, it's not the moon's fault that you weren't built for it. 
It's not the moon's fault that you're going to need to wear a complicated suit. If you want to look directly into the sun, it's hardly a defect in the sun that you can't handle that kind of brilliance, right? That you're going to need to use some kind of solar filters. Friends, if you want to come to God, you have to know that sinful people weren't built for that kind of experience any more than you were built to walk on the moon or stand in the middle of a raging wildfire. And so it's not something wrong with God. Let's get that clear at the outset. Something's wrong with us. God, in his great love, has provided you with a spacesuit to wear. He's given you solar glasses. He's made a way for you to come into his presence, and he's communicated that way to you in his word. And what we see in our passage for this morning is that this is the only way for the presence of God to be a blessing to us rather than our utter destruction. And friends, that's the key. That's the message of these three chapters in Leviticus. God's presence is never neutral. Engaging with him, coming into his presence, is either the best blessing you could ever imagine or the most terrible, terrible judgment you could ever imagine. And what makes the difference is whether or not we come to him in the way that he has established and approved. And so let's dive into these chapters. Again, we won't read uh, every word of these three chapters, but if you keep your Bible open, we'll jump around a bit. Last week's passage, if you remember, was uh, chapters 1 to 7, was essentially a monologue. The Lord speaking to Moses about the sacrifices that were to be offered in the tabernacle. Today's passage is more of a traditional narrative. We see what happens next. And so let's just walk through these events and see what there is for us to learn about how we come to God, how we approach him. If you look there at the beginning of chapter 8, starting in verse 1, we are introduced to the action in the first five verses. It says there, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. So God tells Moses to bring the people to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Most likely this meant bringing the crowds sort of outside the tabernacle with the elders and leaders of the people actually coming into the courtyard. The purpose of this assembly, as we'll see, is taking Aaron, so that's Moses' brother, and Aaron's sons, and installing them in the priestly ministry of the tabernacle. So last week we saw instructions about how people were to offer sacrifices, how the priests were meant to work with the people uh, to offer these gifts to the Lord. A until now, until this point though, no one's qualified to actually do it. No one is actually authorized to perform those sacrifices. And so that's what we see here in chapters 8 and 9. Aaron and his sons are, are being ordained and installed and authorized to actually carry out the sacrifices we read about last week. There in verse 5, Moses tells the people what's about to happen is what the Lord has commanded to be done. He's referring back to Exodus 29. Right there, the Lord describes the ceremony that's about to unfold here in Leviticus 8 to 9. Right? He told Moses exactly what he should do. And just put a pin in that idea. We're going to come back to it a bit later. That's what we have to sort of understand as we read these instructions. This is not some kind of religious ritual that Moses dreamed up. Like, 
what would seem kind of, I don't know, spiritual and numinous? Well, we could do, no, no. Moses here is carrying out very specifically, very clearly, the instructions that God had given. And so he highlights that there in verse 5. He says, look, what's about to happen is what the Lord has told us. There in verse 6 of chapter 8, Moses takes Aaron and his sons and he washes them with water, just as was commanded in Exodus 29 verse 4. There in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 8, he takes the high priestly garments that the Lord had described in Exodus 28, and he puts them on Aaron, just as God had said in Exodus 29 verses 5 to 6. In Leviticus 8 13, Moses clothes Aaron's sons in the sort of regular priest clothing, right? Again, this is described for us in Exodus 39, right? We we see here the priest being clothed in special garments, and we understand the significance of special clothing, right? If you see a woman in a, a long white dress with a veil, you know she's a bride, right? If you see someone in a uniform with a cap and a glove, okay, you know that's a baseball player. If Joshua Lauder shows up for church and he's got his full sheriff's office kit on, right, we know he's on duty today, right? Here, the high priest is dressed in a way that that shows he's sort of installed in a certain office. He's being clothed in in garments that highlight the beauty and the glory of the Lord, along with the very special nature of the task for which he's being set apart. And so these clothes are put on the priest and on uh, on the high priest. Everyone's dressed for the part, and it's time now for the next step in the ritual. There in verses 10 to 11 of chapter 8, Moses sprinkles the tabernacle, and all the utensils in it with a special oil. That oil is described for us in Exodus 30. It was olive oil mixed with cinnamon and other aromatic spices. There in verse 12, he takes some of that same oil and he pours it on Aaron. In verse 30, he takes that oil and some of the blood of the altar and he sprinkles it on Aaron's garments and on the garments of his son. And what we're told there is that the purpose of the oil was to consecrate things. That is to say, to set them apart for holy use. It's a way of showing that this tent, this altar, this utensil, this basin, these men, they're not common. They're not ordinary. They've been designated for a special holy purpose. At that point, we see a series of sacrifices being offered. So these are some of the same sacrifices we saw described last week. But they're not being offered by the priests because, again, the priests aren't finished being installed yet. Uh, Moses is the one who offers these sacrifices. It's sort of Moses' last priestly act before he hands over the baton of authority to his brother Aaron. God, or Moses is God's appointed mediator. He offers these sacrifices to install Aaron and his sons so that they could then take over the work. In chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, we see Moses offers the sin offering. Aaron and his sons put their hands on the head of the bull, identifying with it, as it were. And then the the animal is killed in a sacrifice of atonement, a sort of symbol of taking the the penalty for Aaron's sins and the sins of his sons. There in verses 18 to 21, they present a ram as a burnt offering. Right, The idea here was that the the burnt offering purified, uh, cleansed the altar and the priests. And then if you look there in verses 22 to 24, we read this about Moses. It says, he presented the other ram the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear 
and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. So this was a special sacrifice, an ordination offering. We read about that last week. And the idea was this was what installed the priests in their office. Blood was applied from this sacrifice to the earlobe, to the right thumb and the right big toe. Right? It was a way of representing that all of the priests had been dedicated to the purpose of ministry in the tabernacle. His head, his hands, his feet. Right? Every thought, every deed, everywhere he went was to be devoted to the Lord. There in verses 25 to 29, Moses finishes this ordination offering. In verses 31 to 32, the Lord gives him instructions for how he and Aaron and the priests should prepare the meat from the sacrifices and use it along with some bread to make a meal. Again, remember, meals are really significant ways of sort of recognizing a covenant relationship. And so the Lord tells them here to, to prepare this meal from the sacrifices. And then the chapter ends, chapter 8 ends with these instructions, beginning in verse 33. The Lord says, You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die. For so I have commanded, so, or for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. So the Lord, speaking through Moses, communicates to Aaron and his sons that there's going to be a seven-day period, a seven-day sort of installation period. This process is going to take a full week. In the meantime, they cannot go into the tent of meeting, into the presence of the Lord. They have to stay in the outer courtyard at the entrance, right? They have to perform, according to verse 35, these same rituals of cleansing and atonement over and over. It's almost as if they're their presence in the tabernacle has a defiling effect, right? The fact that they're there, but they're not yet fully qualified to be there means these sacrifices have to keep being offered to sort of cleanse and purify everything. And know what it says there in verse 35. He says, do these things so that you do not die, for so I have commanded, right? The Lord is speaking through Moses to Aaron. He's saying, look, you're your spacesuit is not yet fully installed. Don't attempt to leave the craft. Don't go out. Your ordination is not complete. You cannot come into my presence yet. There in verse 36, we read that Aaron and his sons do everything that the Lord had commanded. As chapter 9 opens, those seven days of waiting are complete. So in chapter 9, verse 1, Moses calls to Aaron and the sons of Aaron and uh, the elders of Israel, and he authorizes Aaron to begin the sacrificial system, to begin the sort of daily sacrifices. And so here it is. It's about to start. It's about to begin. So we read there in chapter 9, verses 5 to 6 about the people of Israel. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. 
in verses 7 to 21 of chapter 9, we see Aaron bringing all of the sacrifices that were appointed last week. So in verses 8 to 11, he brings a sin offering for himself. In verses 12 to 14, he brings a burnt offering for the people. In verses 15 to 16, he brings a sin offering for the people. Verse 17, a grain offering. And then finally, in verses 18 to 21, he offers a peace offering. And so when all of that's complete, uh, all of these initial sacrifices were finished, we read there in verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So Aaron comes down from the sort of elevated altar, altar where he was making these offerings. And he and Moses go into the tent of meeting. He goes for his first spacewalk. Moses has done it before, but it's the first time for Aaron. And the question is, is his suit up to the task? Did those sacrifices go the way they were supposed to go? You feel the tension. The answer is a resounding yes. They come out of the tent there in verse 23, which indicates that Aaron did not die. These sacrifices were acceptable to God. The torch, it seems, has passed indeed from Moses to Aaron. The high priest is now authorized to perform these sacrifices. So we see there at the end of verse 22 that the glory of the Lord appears to all the people, not just to Moses, not just to the priests, but to all the people. The way that it's recorded there for us is so matter of fact. It's easy to sort of miss the drama of the moment. Remember this, the glory of the Lord appearing to the people, this was the point of the sacrifices. So if you look back in verse 4 of uh, chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter 9, Moses says, the sacrifice is offered because today the Lord will appear to you. In verse 6, he says, do these things so that the glory of the Lord might appear to you. And then, in fact, that's exactly what happens at the end of the chapter. It feels like this is actually the high point. This is the thing to which everything has been building. Right? God has made a nation out of Abraham's descendants. They've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They have the law, and now they have a fully functioning sacrificial system that will provide for their atonement so that the glory of God can be manifest among them. Right, if we look at the appearances of the glory of the Lord in the book of Exodus, and we sort of take those as our guide, then what we, what we have here in chapter 9 is a fiery cloud descending on the tent. Right, the emphasis is on the presence of God, that he is with his people. There in verse 24, fire, it says, comes out from before the Lord and consumes all the burnt offerings. And that sounds terrifying, but in reality, it's a good thing. It was a sign that these sacrifices that had been been offered on the altar were accepted by the Lord. And so look at the end result there in verse 23. We see Moses and Aaron, they bless the people. So we don't know the exact content of that blessing, but it may very well be the same priestly blessing that we see described in Numbers chapter 6. So we read there in Numbers 6, starting in verse 22. 
the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. So this is the blessing that the Lord gives to Aaron and his sons that they should use to bless the people. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. That's glory imagery there. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. That's, that's presence language, right? To be before someone's countenance or face is to be in their presence. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So it may well be that that's the blessing that Aaron uh, offers here to the people. But if not, it probably had something of the same content. We read here at the end of Leviticus 9, the people are blessed. They shout in verse 24 and they fall on their faces. And I think that from context, we should understand that shout not as a shout of abject terror, but as one of joy and awe and triumph. They fall on their faces and they worship their God who is with them. Now, before we move on to chapter 10, just stop for a second and notice what this teaches us about God. I think the thing that might strike us first and foremost is the holiness and the glory and the otherness of God. And that's certainly right. The whole sacrificial system emphasizes the fact that sinners are not safe in the presence of God. Right? It takes a whole week of sacrifices just to get Aaron ready to come before the Lord. Right? It's not hard to get the point of the fire and the glory. Right? The Lord is not like us. In his power, in his purity, in his holiness, he is far more intense than the sun. You would find it much easier to wander in uninvited to the Oval Office, to stroll into Buckingham Palace, than you would find it to go into the presence of the Lord without an invitation. But the big news here, I think, is not just that God is holy and glorious. The really big shock is how clearly and unmistakably he invites us to come to him. The, the headline here is not just that it's hard to go into God's presence. The headline is that he wants you in his presence. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to be blessed by him. The problem, I think, for us as we read a passage like this is we don't really have great, such a great sense of why that's a big deal. We might not be conscious of it, but there is a deep longing in the human heart to be in the presence of God, to be satisfied with his perfection. That only makes sense in light of the Bible's storyline, right? According to the Bible, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, were created to live in an immediate relationship with their God. Right? God walks with them. He talks with them. Right? And at creation, what we see is that God looks out over everything he made, including human beings, and he says, he declares that it's good. He sees that it's pleasing. But when mankind fell into sin, we, we forfeited that divine blessing, that divine benediction. Right? We, we no longer hear God's approval spoken over us. And so all of our anxiety, all of our fear, all of our self-consciousness, all our sense of not being good enough, all of our purposelessness, it all, it all stems back to this unfulfilled longing to be with God, to be in his favor, to experience him 
and to experience his approval. So the Bible describes the presence of God as the greatest thing we could imagine, the greatest gift that God has to give to us. It is the reward that we get as believers at the end of our lives. Remember, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, Matthew 5.8. See, friends, in God's presence, there is no sickness, no sorrow, no sin, right? In God's presence, everything is as it should be. It's holy. It's right. In God's presence, every longing that you have here on earth that can't be satisfied is filled and met with his goodness and his glory, right? To be in the presence of God is to have all of life's trials and temptations wiped away, we don't have any concept. We only have hints. We have glimmers in our world, right? If you, if you think about the most awe-inspiring thing you've ever witnessed, whether that's a beautiful location, the most powerful music, the most compelling piece of theater, the most exciting sporting event, whatever it is, if you think about what it was like to, to, to see that for the first time, right? This is going to sound corny, but for me, legitimately, I think about when I was 12 years old and a friend's father took me with their family to go to Yankee Stadium for the first time. And we walked out through the tunnel and I saw the green grass and the white NY painted on the back and the banners hanging up and the and I was, I was gobsmacked, right? Now think, whatever it is for you, think about just how tiny and how derivative a little splinter of God's glory that thing is, right? Because God's the one who made it, right? It's meant to point you beyond itself to a much greater, more captivating love and presence. To be in God's presence is to have everything you've ever longed for in this world, right? It's far more than any, any poet could ever describe. It's better than any musician could ever point us to. No artist can fully capture this glory, right? The good news is God's presence is everything we've longed for, and he wants us to be in it. He's made a way for people to come and experience that imperfectly in this life, but truly, and then permanently, perfectly, eternally with him forever. There's nothing outside of God that compels him to, to make it possible for us to come to him. Right? Just stop and think about that for a second. Nothing forces God's hand to, to go to such great lengths to make it possible for us to be in his presence. He would have been perfectly within his rights just to say, you rebelled, you're out of luck. Right? You're outside forever. But because God loves us, because of who he is, because he is so good, he wants us to enjoy him forever, right? If he weren't like that, if he didn't care, if he wasn't willing for us to come and be restored to him, you and I would be shut out. That is hell. No beauty, no delight, no health, no prosperity, no hope, no joy for all eternity. So here in Leviticus 9, God has provided his people with a temporary and provisional experience of that joy, of the glory of his presence he has, as we said, replanted the Garden of Eden in the desert, and he is dwelling amongst his people. He is with them as their God. He will protect them and provide for them, and they will delight in him. And so they shout, and they're blessed, and they fall down on their faces and worship. And you, 
you almost want the Old Testament to stop in Leviticus 9. Right? It's like the end of a movie. The music swells. All the main characters that you've come to love are happy. Right? And they're just going to kind of ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. But that's not how life in a fallen world works. And Leviticus 10 comes after Leviticus 9. And so look at what we read right there in the very first verse of Leviticus 10. Going all the way down to verse 7. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael, and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near. Carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. And do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. At the end of chapter 10, we find that these events took place on the very same day. Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, go in and they, author, they offer, according to verse 1, unauthorized fire before the Lord. It's not clear exactly what that means. The word unauthorized is sometimes translated as strange or foreign, right? They put something on the altar of the Lord that doesn't belong there, something not what the Lord had commanded. Some have speculated that they were drunk. There in verses 8 to 9 of chapter 10, the Lord warns Aaron that priests are not to drink strong wine. It kind of comes out of nowhere. So some have speculated maybe that was in response to what his sons had done. But in any event, God had specifically warned against offering this kind of strange offering. Back in Exodus uh, chapter 30, verse 9, we see these same words about unauthorized or strange fire. And the consequences here in chapter 10 are swift and terrifying. What we see is chapter 10 is a kind of upside-down version of chapter 9. In chapter 9, fire comes out from before the Lord and consumes the sacrifices. Here in chapter 10, fire comes out from before the Lord and consumes the priests. Just as the glory of the Lord was present with the people at the end of chapter 9, so the Lord says to Aaron through Moses there in verse 3, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Right? It is a strong warning to the high priest. If you don't treat me as holy, as sanctified, by your actions, by, by keeping my commands, I will use your death to make it clear that I am such. Right? If you don't treat my presence as glorious, I will make it clear through your death. I wonder how you respond to that story. 
Again, I think if we're honest, some of us might be tempted to think poorly of the Lord. Right? If you're a Christian, you might read this and feel uncomfortable. I mean, you have no choice but to accept it. It's not like you're going to chuck your entire faith overboard over one story. But it, but it does seem kind of cruel, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't you prefer that God wasn't like this? And maybe if you're not a Christian, you read this and think, see, this is why I can't get on board with the God of the Old Testament, angry, vindictive, kind of a hair trigger, taking the life of two people simply for making the wrong offering. I think those responses, if maybe you identify with some version of either one of those two things, I think those responses are actually really, really helpful. Right? If you're feeling something like that, and I'll be honest, my gut reaction was somewhere like that, then just take a second and listen to yourself. That impulse, that reaction that we have to this story is a perfect example of why sinful people can't be in the presence of a holy God. The fact that God views their disrespect and presumption as a capital crime, and we kind of sympathize with them, it shows the problem, doesn't it? It shows why you and I aren't fit for paradise, why we're not able to live in God's presence. Right? If we were allowed in as we are, we would ruin it. We'd bring our sin, our lack of concern for holiness, our disregard for God's glory in with us, and we would spoil it. Look there in verse 3. Aaron keeps his peace, it says. He's just lost two of his sons, but he remains silent in the face of the Lord's judgment. In verses 4 to 5, they have Aaron's cousins come and get the bodies and carry them out, presumably because the priests would be unclean if they touched these dead bodies. Lord willing, in a, uh, next week we'll think about these um, laws of cleanliness but a dead body is ritually unclean, and so the priests can't touch it. There in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 10, Moses warns Aaron. He says basically, look, you're in the presence of the Lord here. Don't do something stupid. Don't, he tells them, don't go outside the tent. You've got the anointing oil on you. Don't tear your clothes there in verse 6. Don't wail for your son. Let the people outside mourn what's happened. And there in verse 7, they do, it says, what the Lord commanded. And that leads to something of a, another seeming crisis at the end of the chapter. We won't spend much time on this, but in verses 12 to 15, Moses commands the surviving priests uh, about the way they were to eat the sacrifices. So remember, eating the food was their privilege and their right. Then in verses 16 to 18, Moses gets angry because he thinks that the sons of Aaron haven't followed some of the Lord's instructions, right? And, and again, that has really terrible consequences. There in verse 19, Aaron clarifies his understanding of the sacrifices that were offered, right? Depending on what kind of sacrifice you were offering for who you were or weren't supposed to eat it. He tells Moses, look, we didn't eat it because we understood it was this kind of sacrifice. There in verse 20, Moses is um, satisfied with that. They're not being disrespectful to the Lord. And so what is it that we learn from this incident, from the, the death of Aaron's two sons? Let me suggest two things as we conclude, two things that I think will help kind of tie these chapters together. First, we see the importance of living under the authority of God's word. From the very beginning, from creation, we see that humanity 
is meant to live by the word of God. So in the Garden of Eden, before sin enters the world, God condescends. He stoops to come down to Adam and Eve and, and to speak to them. Right? Think about that. God could have left them on their own to figure everything out. But he speaks. He interprets their world for them. He says, here's how you were made. Here's what you're for. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's what you're not supposed to do. Thus, it comes as no surprise that the very first temptation to sin comes as an attack on God's word. The serpent asks Eve, did, did God really say? Can you really be confident in what God has said? Is that really, is that really the law? Are you really obligated to do whatever God says? It's no surprise when Satan tempts the Lord Jesus in the wilderness that he tries to twist God's word. And it's no surprise that Jesus rebuffs him by reminding him that man can't live by bread alone, but, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here in Leviticus, we see God continues to speak. He continues to explain and instruct and call his people through his word. So just if you have your Bible open, just follow along with this. There at the beginning of chapter 8, the very first words are, The Lord spoke to Moses. There in verse 4, Moses did what the Lord commanded. He obeyed the Lord's words. In verse 5, Moses tells the people of Israel, this is what the Lord has commanded to be done. And then it becomes a drumbeat throughout these chapters. So in verse 9, it's as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 13, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 17, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 21, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 29, as the Lord commanded Moses. There in verse 31, Moses tells Aaron to do what he commanded. Right, clearly because this is what the Lord had told Moses. Verse 34, the Lord has commanded. There in verse 36, a summary, Leviticus 8, 36. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Everything we see in chapter 8 is specifically a response to the word of God, the command of God. That in chapter 9, verse 5, they bring what Moses commanded. There in verse 6, this is what the Lord has commanded. Verse 7, it's as the Lord has commanded. Verse 10, as the Lord commanded. Verse 21, as Moses commanded. Right, do you get the impression that this is important? Right, that's what frames the death of Aaron's two sons for us. They did something, we're told, other than what the Lord has commanded. God's people listen to his word. God's people are shaped and ruled over by his word. And brothers and sisters, this is crucial for us as a congregation. This is in many ways the very heart of the disagreement between Protestants and the Roman church. Right? The Roman church asserts other authorities, the authority of the Pope, the authority of tradition, and holds those things up next to and sometimes even over the word of God. But we understand that God's people have always been created and shaped and formed and ruled over by his word. We live our lives, we worship God according to the commandment of the Lord, as it says here. Brothers and sisters, we can't rely on anything else. We can't rely on our society anymore. We can't rely on cultural influencers, our government, 
educational institutions, the media, the internet, our friends. We can't even, again, to commit the highest blasphemy you can commit these days, you can't even rely on your own heart. None of those things are qualified. None of them have the authority to interpret the world for us and rule over us and command our obedience like the Word of God does. Perhaps the most important question you can answer this morning, the thing that will shape your life now and for all eternity more than anything else, is whether or not you will listen to the Word of God and do what He commands. Right? This passage from Leviticus shows us there is blessing when we draw near to the presence of God according to his word. And there is terrible judgment if we disregard it. And that brings us to the second thing for us to see. That is that in these chapters, we see a beautiful picture of the work of the Lord Jesus. I think it's obvious by the end of chapter 10 why this system of sacrifices is temporary and provisional. The Levitical system left everyone on a razor's edge, constantly offering sacrifices for their own sins, hoping that they would get it right. Right? You see Moses' panic at the end of chapter 10 when he thinks that Aaron and his sons have messed up. Right? Leviticus 8 to 10 leaves us wishing that there was a sacrifice so perfect that it could just be offered once for all rather than having to continually go through this process. Leviticus 8 to 10 leaves us wishing for a priest so perfect that he could bring us into the presence of God without any fear that we're going to mess it up. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly who the Lord Jesus is and what he came to do. As we read earlier in our service from Hebrews chapter 7, he is the perfect high priest. The author of Hebrews in chapter 7 verse 26 says he's holy innocent, unstained. He did not need to offer sacrifices for his own sins the way that Aaron did. He had no need to offer repeated sacrifices for the sins of the people because, again, according to the author of Hebrews, he did this once for all, one time for all, when he offered himself up on the cross, Hebrews 7.27. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he serves there as our great priest, right? The tabernacle in Leviticus, it's a, it's a shadow of a heavenly reality. Aaron's ministry that we see in these chapters in Leviticus, it is a shadow of what the Lord Jesus is doing for us in heaven. He appears there in the presence of God, not offering sacrificed bulls, but he's there on the basis of his perfect sacrifice for us. And so now we have a way to come to the Lord, to come to his presence, really and truly now, and perfectly and permanently in eternity. But friend, there is no other way. You cannot come into God's presence on your own anymore than you could go on a spacewalk in your pajamas. Right? Leviticus 8 to 10 makes that perfectly clear. God wants you to draw near. But you must draw near by the way that he appoints and accepts. You must put on the righteousness of Christ by faith. And you can't come to him offering him your good works. You can't come to him offering him a a religion that, that mankind has made up. 
God calls you to draw near to him, to experience the blessing of his presence only through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And when we come that way, we have no fear. We have no guilt. We have an assurance of acceptance, an assurance of God's presence. And friends, you realize that's what we're doing when we come to the Lord's Supper. Here in the the bread and the cup, we have a visible reminder of the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus offered so that we could come and have fellowship with God, so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could enjoy his presence rather than being terrified by it. When we come in faith, we we are obeying the command of the Lord, saying, you have opened up this way for us, and we delight in it. And before we come to the table, it's appropriate for us to take time to examine our lives. That's Paul's encouragement to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, he says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This supper is for all those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ who have demonstrated that by obeying the command of Christ to be baptized. It's for every follower of Christ who's connected to a gospel-believing church through membership. Brothers and sisters, the invitation to come to this table is a gracious one. It is extended to you not on the basis of any good thing that you've done, but because of what the Lord Jesus has done for you. So to be perfectly clear, the Lord's table is not a performance review. This is not an opportunity for you to look at your week and see how well you've done, see what feelings of guilt and unworthiness you might have, and decide whether you clear the bar to come take the Lord's Supper. This is a meal for anyone who is a sinner saved by grace. But with that said, it's not something we should take lightly. Again, Leviticus 8 to 10 reminds us of that. So if you know yourself not to be a Christian then this meal is not for you, at least not yet. So instead of coming forward, use this time to think about your need for a savior, for a a priest who will go on your behalf into the presence of God. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but your life is marked by sin that you have no intention of ever turning from, if you insist on holding on to bitterness against your brother or sister in Christ, then do what a Christian does. And repent of your sin. Turn from it. Confess it to the Lord. Turn your back on it. And then come to the Lord's table. This is a meal for repentant sinners. And so what we'll do now is take time uh, to examine ourselves. We'll have a moment of quiet reflection. And then I will lead us in a prayer of corporate confession. And then we'll sing and celebrate together. Let's pray.